Hello and welcome to Abemus Papam, episode 221, Paul IV. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Abemus Papam. So today's Pope is an unexpected one, but someone we've met before. As the Church is trying to continue its process of reforming itself and combating challenges brought about by the Protestant Reformation, today's Pope would seem to be a perfect candidate to continue this process, but that might not have gone as well as might have been hoped. His name is Gian Pietro Carafa, and he was born in Naples to an aristocratic family in 1476. From an early age, he showed a love for the Church and discerned that he had a religious vocation, probably to be a Dominican. And it was so much against the will of his parents, however, that at the age of 14, he and his sister ran away from home to try and join religious life. His parents weren't super happy with religious life, but they did allow him to continue studying theology, and eventually he was entrusted to his uncle, Cardinal Carafa, the Archbishop of Naples, who was a humanistic Renaissance bishop in the court of Pope Alexander VI. Because of his uncle, he rose in the ranks and was named the Bishop of Chieti in 1503 where he ended up living as a diocesan bishop from 1507 to 1513. As diocesan bishop, he was strict and inflexible. He exercised his authority to renew the diocese and reform the morals of his clergy, but he did so very harshly. He led by example, though. He was, he was strict and pious with himself as well, but his style tended to be dictatorial rather than encouraging, which didn't earn him many friends. In 1513, he returned to Rome to attend the Fifth Lateran Council, and then he was used by the Pope in diplomatic tasks, the most important being his services as Apostolic Nuncio to Spain. And there in Spain, he read, met the reforming circle of bishops that was there, in particular, the future Pope Adrian VI. And when he returned to Rome, he became involved with the group of priests I mentioned last time called the Oratory of Divine Love. The Oratory of Divine Love was a group of committed Catholics, both lay and clerical originally, that met in Genoa and lived a common life together with a focus on a growth in holiness, care for the poor, and reform of the church. It opened a, a branch or a chapter in Rome, which was just for clerics, sometime around 1515, and it attracted the attention of the leading reform-minded clerics at the time, including St. Cajetan and Bishop Carafa. It was there that Bishop Carafa got to know like-minded clergy who were as dedicated as he was to reform. Now, at this time, he too was appointed to a commission to examine the works of Martin Luther, and he came away from the situation absolutely committed to stamping out heterodoxy throughout the, the church with a strict reforming spirit. This would eventually put him at odds with some of the other reformers of the time period, many of whom were sympathetic to some of the Protestant critiques of Rome, at least understanding that Rome was corrupt and needed to be reformed. While Bishop Garafa wanted to end corruption, he certainly didn't want people to think that the Lutherans were right in any way. So this zeal for reform brought Bishop Carafa back to Rome again in 1523 with the election of Pope Adrian VI, who knew he would be willing to help with his own projects. But when Pope Clement VII was elected, he was no longer needed in Rome. So he decided to ask the Pope for permission to leave his diocese and with St. Cajetan to start a new religious order called the Congregation of Clerics Regular, or the Theatines, which comes from the Latin name for Bishop Carafa's diocese. The bishop gave away all his possessions, turned over his diocese to the Pope, and started out as the first superior of the new congregation. The Theatines were directly under the care of the Pope, which gave them a lot of autonomy, and they were focused on a strict discipline and good formation. They would be the model that the Jesuits would later follow as they were beginning their own project. Now, as a mover in church reform circles and as the superior of the Theatines, Bishop Carafa was entrusted with the reform efforts around the church, particularly in Venice. 
though he remained distrustful of the more moderate reform wing of the church, which grew in influence with the election of Pope Paul III. Now, despite this unease, Bishop Carafa eventually accepted an invitation to come to Rome in 1536 to join the Committee of Reformers working on preparing for the upcoming Council of Trent. Shortly thereafter, in December of 1536, Carafa was named a cardinal. Again, there was some division in this commission, with people like Cardinal Contarini and Cardinal Paul open to more dialogue with the Lutherans, while Cardinal Carafa was more intent on a strict rejection of the Lutheran position and a harsher practice of reform in the church. Both sides agreed that reform needed to happen. The question was, what was the best method for that reform? In 1541, the dialogues with the Protestants at Radisbon or Regensburg collapsed, which stifled the hopes of the moderates and strengthened Cardinal Carafa's side. It was easier for him to show that the Lutherans were acting in bad faith. It likewise instilled in him the belief that the Emperor Charles V was really Protestant in his sympathies and led to a profound distrust of him. Now, one of the areas of greatest concerns for Carafa was the maintenance of Catholic dogmatic teaching in Italy. The Waldensian sect, a proto-Protestant movement that had its origins in the 12th century, had been turning more and more towards the Protestants, and they were much closer to home than the Lutherans. And so he worked to convince the Pope of the need for an office in Rome to stamp out heresy in Italy, which the Pope agreed to in July of 1542, establishing the Holy Office, or as we know it today, the Roman Inquisition, which later became the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Now, from that post, Cardinal Carafa did his best to block the work of those he considered dangerous compromisers in the quest for reform, namely Cardinal Pole and Cardinal Contarini, and the Emperor Charles V, and then to bring Pope Paul III more in line to his thought. This division continued with the death of Pope Paul III, and Cardinal Carafa played a definitive role in blocking the election of Cardinal Pole, which led to the compromise election we heard about a couple episodes ago of Pope Julius III, He used his influence to push forward his own candidates who were more zealous and uncompromising reformers in papal bureaucracy and appointments. And then this also led to the election of Pope Marcellus II. Finally, in 1555, with the death of Pope Marcellus, it led to the surprising election of the then 79-year-old Cardinal Carafa as Pope. He took the name Paul IV after his patron Paul III and immediately began an even more zealous reforming mission in the church in Rome. Now, if you remember from the past, at this point, the Council of Trent was still closed due to a dispute between Pope Julius III and the Emperor Charles V. The council would not be reopened by the new pope, who saw it as pointless and kind of a creature of the Holy Roman Emperor and too compromising and dangerous. So his reforms would flow from the top down by papal decree and activity. He himself continued his rigorous, pious, and austere lifestyle. He was not a papal prince like some of his predecessors. We need to stop here at this point and take stock of what kind of pope he would be. Because we, to be honest, want zealous reformers. The church needed reform, and another Renaissance prince like one of the Medici cousins would have been such a scandal at this point. The Protestants had a point. Rome was very corrupt, and it needed to be reformed. A pious man trying to live holiness is ostensibly the kind of pope the church needed. But Paul IV proceeded almost too harshly. He was authoritarian and strict beyond what was necessary. He reorganized the church in Rome and the government of the papal states with that in mind, expanding the Inquisition, putting harsh requirements on non-Catholics in the papal states, most especially the Jews, who were relegated by him to the Roman ghetto and lived as second or third class citizens. And yet, while being such a strict former pope, Paul still fell prey to the nepotistic tendencies of the age when he promoted his nephew, who had no vocational discernment before his uncle became pope, to be a cardinal. And he relied on the new Cardinal Carafa unwisely in some of his political decisions. His nephew played on his distrust of Charles V and pushed his uncle even more towards the French, causing a conflict between France, Spain, and the Empire. 
When Charles V retired, his son Philip II became king of Spain, and war commenced with France, and thanks to Cardinal Carafa, the papal states were involved too. They didn't do too well in that war. The conflict ended with Spanish troops within a couple miles of Rome in 1557, and Cardinal Carafa needed to save face and made a peace treaty on behalf of his uncle. The Pope, meanwhile, used his power of the Inquisition to attack more pro-imperial or moderate opponents in Rome, especially some of the more powerful cardinals. He also sought to reduce their power in the College of Cardinals by appointing a large number of new cardinals, none of them for political reasons. Most of them were relatively unknown, holy priests and bishops, although he did appoint a second nephew, which was thrown in there. But it does give us the chance to talk about the first cardinal nephew, Cardinal Carafa, who was eventually removed from power when the Pope realized what a horrible life he was living. He stripped him of authority and cut him off from his household. Meanwhile, the Pope undertook to continue the strict reform of the church in Rome. He forced out most of the bishops who were living in Rome instead of in their diocese, which was over 100 before he took office. He also published the first ever Index of Forbidden Books, a comprehensive list of books which were deemed contrary to the Catholic faith. But here, as in a lot of his reforms, one could argue that he went too far and was too strict, prompting backlashes. Another example of this was the fact that he ordered the painting on of fig leaves on great works of Renaissance art in the Vatican for the sake of modesty. The climate in Rome was one of harsh, zealous rigor, and it didn't go over very well. This is not the way lasting reforms are accomplished in the church. There needs to be some balance. And the people of Rome felt it. When the Pope died on August 18, 1559, fairly suddenly, the news was announced to the people of Rome, and they tore down a statue of the Pope, dragged it through the streets, and threw it in the river. They attacked the headquarters of the Inquisition and the churches of the Dominicans, and they were rioting for days. Pope Paul IV, meanwhile, was buried in one of those Dominican churches, Santa Maria Sopra Minerva, and he was succeeded by Pope Pius IV, which we will talk about next time. Thank you for listening to Abemus Papam. You can find the rest of the Catholic Link podcast at catholiclink.org or on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you and God bless you.